Welcome to Broad Eat Strategy. When we first launched the Broad Eat Strategy podcast series, we promised to explore organized crime, boiler rooms, money launderers, warlords, kleptocrats, fallen CEOs, and the companies that have been damaged or destroyed through their criminality. In the first 30 episodes, I'd like to think that we've delivered on that promise. We've interviewed 39 fascinating people, many of whom experienced firsthand some of the most notorious fraud and corruption cases in the modern era. We also discussed effective compliance and anti-fraud strategies and provided practical advice on how to avoid becoming the next scandalous headline. Our guests have been wide-ranging and sometimes strangely interconnected. They've included a whistleblower who was 2002's Time Magazine Co-Person of the Year and a former Special Inspector Jammer, three former FBI Special Agents, one former IRS Special Agent, two former assistant district attorneys, one former Florida Department of Law Enforcement investigator, two financial investigations unit heads, seven former assistant U.S. attorneys, one convicted felon, now a compliance luminary, and the former head of the U.N. Procurement Fraud Task Force who investigated him. We've interviewed the former FCPA chiefs at both the SEC and the DOJ, and the longest-serving U.S. attorney in Chicago, who also served as a special prosecutor. We interviewed a chief audit executive and her chief information security officer counterpart, two college professors, one of whom is a best-selling author and the other his former student, three chief compliance officers, one think tank analyst, the former general counsel of Siemens, two additional in-house counsel, and a total of 24 attorneys. We're rapidly approaching 10,000 listeners in 97 countries. The 30 episodes fell into a number of categories, major cases and what they can teach us, fraud prevention and white-collar crime, foreign bribery, kleptocracy, and efforts to counter it, anti-money laundering and sanctions, and in-house perspectives from internal audit, the CISO, and compliance officers. And the topic I can't get enough of, investigations and investigative techniques. So major cases and what can they teach us? We discussed three of the most important cases in the modern era, Enron, Siemens, and Madoff, and a fourth case in which I was personally involved, the case of the missing private banker. We kicked off the podcast with Enron whistleblower Sharon Watkins, and with it came flame mails from friends who'd been partners in Arthur Anderson, who were understandably still pretty pissed off. And yet, despite the lingering animosity, there is no one case that better typifies the modern era of public company investigations than Enron. Enron had been wildly successful, and that type of success can lead to a lax attitude toward compliance. This lax attitude can lead to people not being as alarmed by obvious red flag behavior as perhaps they should be. Ms. Watkins cited a truly stunning example to illustrate her point. Enron's board of directors was asked to waive the company's code of conduct prohibition against conflicts of interest in favor of then-CFO Andy Fastow, and they agreed. Fastow had proposed raising a $500 million investment partnership fund for the sole purpose of doing business with Enron. She described this extraordinary move by the Enron board as absolutely shocking and said that had the board not approved what was an obvious conflict of interest, the Enron fraud would never have happened. I asked her what steps organizations should take now to avoid the possibility of a major fraud scandal and the damage that comes with it. She said there needs to be a system for bad news to be reported up the chain of command and removing the roadblocks for that information to make its way to the top. In Enron's case, CEO Ken Lay let it be known that he didn't want to hear bad news. And as a result, Enron's human resources department had an unwritten policy that if bad news came from a former employee, it was presumed not to be valid since it was coming from a disgruntled former employee. 
not only was this information not communicated upward, it was also Sharon's vernacular chunked in the trash. What happened at Enron embodies a lot of the fears and anxieties of many whistleblowers. What if they do nothing and instead shoot the messenger? On to our next case. So on December 11th, 2008, Bernie Madoff was arrested by the FBI in his Manhattan home and was criminally charged with a multi-million dollar securities fraud scheme. So began the most comprehensive and successful financial investigation and asset search in history. The Securities Investor Protection Corporation, CIPIC, appointed Irving Picard as trustee and Baker Hot Pastetler as counsel to preside over the largest financial crime investigation and asset recovery ever. Early reports were that Madoff had embezzled as much as $65 billion from his customers. In actuality, $45 billion of that figure was an illusion created by fraudulent account statements misleading his investors into thinking their investments were appreciating when, in fact, they weren't investments at all. Madoff told investors that he would put their investments into a split-strike conversion strategy, which he described as a diversified basket of blue-chip stocks that outwardly appeared to be safe bets. Had he invested the $20 billion that he took from investors in this way, it would have comprised between seven and 65 times the size of the market for those derivative instruments. Shauna Brown was deputy counsel to the Madoff trustee. She joined us for the episode. She described the Madoff operation as a sophisticated printing operation. He printed statements. That's literally all he did. She elaborated that the entire myth that Madoff curated and perpetuated over the course of many years was possible because all of their customers, including large institutions, were receiving paper statements. This enabled Madoff to look at the actual stock performance of the stocks which he led people to believe he invested in, cherry-pick the high-performing stocks, and generate paper statements as though he miraculously only invested in stocks that appreciated Shauna met with him twice in prison, and he repeatedly talked about the brilliance of his split-strike strategy. At one point, Shauna called him out by stating, but you didn't actually do any of that, did you? Shauna described Madoff as someone who was unrepentant and who really trivialized what he had done as you know, nothing more than a books and records violations, which technically it was since no securities were ever purchased. And yet it was securities fraud, but it was also investment advisor fraud, mail fraud, wire fraud, money laundering false statements, perjury, false filings with the SEC, and theft from an employee benefit plan. Siemens was a global leader and one of the most admired companies in the world until November 16, 2006, when the Munich Police Department raided their offices based on whistleblower allegations of bribery and misuse of funds. This Munich Police Department investigation subsequently triggered a global corruption investigation, which revealed that Siemens had methodically violated U.S., German, and other global anti-bribery laws for decades and systematically paid bribes amounting to over a billion dollars, spanning virtually its entire global footprint. The case was settled two years later. It was a remarkably quick investigation given its size and complexity, and it revealed two amazing things. Siemens, for decades, had systematically used bribery as part of a broad global strategy to win as much government business in the developing world as possible, so much so that they had an infrastructure in place, systems, approvals, and code words, all for the purpose of generating bribe payments, including large sums of cash, paying those bribe payments through intermediaries, and routinely mischaracterizing those bribe payments as though they were legitimate business expenses using the label either useful expenditures and bonus payments. After this, the discovery of the global bribery scheme, 
Siemens completely turned over their board and C-suite and brought in Peter Solmson as general counsel and tasked him with the very tall order of remediating the company's compliance program globally. In this episode, I spoke with Peter and former SEC FCPA chief Kara Brockmeyer about the lessons that we can continue to learn by studying the Siemens case. Peter related a story that a friend of his told him. His friend had gone through the Siemens management training in the 1950s. The instructor at one point said, there will come a time when there will be payments you need to make, which will make you uncomfortable. Don't worry, we've got an office that handles that. That training took place in 1959. Kind of gives you an idea how long and how sophisticated the bribery operation was at Siemens. Peter Solmson and his colleagues, with a lot of help from Kara Brockmeyer's colleagues at Debevoy, orchestrated a remarkable and unprecedented turnaround at Siemens. So by the time the Siemens case was settled, the same representatives from the DOJ, SEC, and FBI, who spoke in scathing terms about the scale, complexity, and audacity of the Siemens bribery, also spoke in glowing terms about how they had remade the company from top to bottom and transformed it into a model of reform and ethical culture. Peter traveled the world during the two years leading up to the FCPA settlement. During a visit to a South American country, Peter was told that the former regional CFO was insisting on meeting with him. When he eventually agreed to meet, the former CFO told him that he had $38 million of the company's money in a bank account in his name, and he wanted to return it. This account and the money never came up in the course of the investigation, and no one knew he had it. This was a really interesting example of the way that Siemens was driving cultural change. There was a lesser known case we also covered on an episode of the podcast, the case of the missing private banker, which featured former FBI supervisory special agent and my friend, Steve Garfinkel. In 1998, I was only two years into my post-FBI career when I was part of a team dispatched to Bank Boston's private banking office headquartered in New York. It wasn't immediately apparent at that time that a crime had been committed. We were just simply sitting in their Madison Avenue offices waiting for the private banking general manager, Ricardo Carrasco, to arrive. The plan was for the initial meeting to be between Carrasco and his supervisor, who had flown down from Boston that morning. And then Carrasco would join us in the conference room later and walk us through the account records. He never showed, and panic soon followed. Multiple private banking customers had defaulted in rapid succession, resulting in a $73 million shortfall. Now, the one person who could explain what happened was nowhere to be found. Our analysis of the bank accounts revealed previously unknown links between the various private banking accounts, strongly suggesting they were under the control of one person, a prominent Argentine businessman named Aldemar Barrero Laborda. Barrero was, at the time, the owner of the Argentine professional soccer team, the Boca Juniors. He was also the regional licensee of stolen vehicle recovery system Lojack, and an apparent close associate of then-president Carlos Menem, who was also reportedly Barrero's daughter's godfather. On the surface, Barrero seemed like nothing more than a well-connected and successful Argentine businessman. Beneath that surface, though, there were some glaring red flags had anyone taken the time to look. We learned that he was reputed to be the head of a major car theft ring operating out of the lawless tri-border area where Argentina, Paraguay, and Brazil meet. He'd also been barred by the Argentine banking sector between 1992 and 1996 for his frequent use of bad checks. But know your customer wasn't really a thing back then, and anti-money laundering compliance was in its infancy. The FBI eventually was notified of the $73 million disappearance, along with the disappearance of the private banker who helped orchestrate it. 
They never found Carrasco and, and neither did we. The FBI subsequently learned that Carrasco had boarded a flight out of Newark using someone else's identification that was possible back then, which was bound for California. And the very last thing anyone heard about Carrasco was that he was seen in Tijuana, Mexico, boarding a private jet owned by Oldemar Barrero. When that same jet landed in Argentina, Carrasco was not on board and was never seen again. Now, the bank recovered $50 million of the stolen money from a successful insurance claim and was eventually sold to Fleet Bank a year or two later. Interestingly, Oldemar Barrero is still around. The last I heard was from an article in the newspaper in Buenos Aires in 2017, where he's under house arrest in connection with what the papers refer to as the cargo mafia case, in which 22 defendants were arrested for widespread fraud and corruption involving international cargo shipments. Back in the day, we used to call ankle monitoring bracelets used for home confinement LOJAC. Now, there are a lot of unanswered questions in this case. Most notably, if Carrasco was still alive, wouldn't he have come forward to put the blame squarely on Barrero's shoulders? And did he board Barrero's private jet in Tijuana and mysteriously disappear somewhere between Tijuana and Buenos Aires? Meanwhile, Barrero is still apparently involved in criminality on a grand scale. He's also still affiliated with Lojack. In fact, he's wearing one right now. Some mysteries remain unsolved. So the next broad topic that we covered in the podcast series was fraud prevention and white-collar crime. Neil Borofsky immediately came to mind as an interesting guest following the passage of the CARES Act bailout program. Neil had served as the Special Inspector General for the last bailout program, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, which dated back to the last financial crisis. Most people would probably be surprised to hear that SIGTARP is still up and running, actively investigating fraud against the TARP program, and is continuing to recover billions of dollars every year. TARP, by the way, is a fraction of the size of the CARES Act. So Neil and I spoke about the increased discovery of financial crime that occurs in a down cycle of the economy and how organizations can use things like fraud risk assessments in tandem with cost-cutting efforts to identify fraud, pursue avenues of recovery, and harden their organization against potential negative consequences. I asked Neil about what types of fraud we can expect associated with the CARES Act, and he referred to the U.S. government as the mother of all whales. When they push out hundreds of billions of dollars in a hurry without the type of normal controls or any fraud provisions you'd expect, that's what Neil described as the honey that draws the criminal flies more than anything. He suggested one very efficient way to discover fraud is by harnessing big data. There's so much data generated by companies, and a lot of the times that data can be repurposed for compliance monitoring. By using data, you can find anomalies or areas where there's potential fraud that the compliance and legal group could work with outside experts to analyze existing data and see areas where there might be ongoing fraud. But the second, even more important and less expensive thing to double down on is your existing controls and procedures. There's a tendency during any time of economic dislocation to cut costs. Generally, one of the first things to go is the compliance function. Neil remarked that his grandmother used to say, cheap now, expensive later. One example is that in an economic downturn, salespeople are going to be under a lot of pressure to generate business. This is where you really must be at your most vigilant. It's not the time to pull back. It's time to make sure that your fraud controls are intact and being paid attention to because that's when fraud risk is at its peak. I spoke about fraud risk and efforts to manage it with Bruce Doris, the CEO of the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. The ACFE is a member organization of over 85,000 certified fraud examiners and the world's largest anti-fraud organization. Fraud isn't static, it's dynamic. 
fraud risk has arguably never been greater than it is right now and has been for the past year in the midst of the financial crisis. According to research undertaken by the ACFE in the wake of COVID-19, anti-fraud experts expected every category of fraud to increase over the course of the year, and they weren't wrong. Fraud is most often a crime of opportunity, and the tectonic disruptions and layoffs caused by the pandemic and the financial crisis have created a chasm of opportunity. Bruce is of the belief that when companies are under stress, when their resilience is being put to the test, this is exactly the right time to perform a fraud risk assessment. Under normal circumstances, most anti-fraud practitioners will advise that fraud risk assessment should be performed at regular intervals of no more than two years, and also if there's a significant change to the business. Well, COVID-19 is a significant change to just about every business that should trigger fraud risk assessments across the globe. At its core, a fraud risk assessment is a critical examination of the people, processes, and systems in place to support business operations and an examination of how they could be negatively impacted by fraud. A meaningful fraud risk assessment considers a a wide range of fraud scenarios across each function related to the assets, disbursements, receipts, payroll, and expenses, the controls in place to mitigate those frauds, and fraud risk assessments may also include sample testing of transactions to determine whether any frauds have been ongoing. There's also another benefit of fraud risk assessments. It raises fraud awareness across the organization, which then sensitizes employees and officers on how to recognize and respond to fraud indicators. It also puts dishonest employees and vendors on notice that the company is adopting a more aggressive stance on fraud. And most importantly, it can significantly reduce the negative consequences of fraud by eventually leading to strengthened fraud controls and interrupting frauds or corruption schemes that were ongoing, which leads to a significantly reduced number of fraud losses. You know, I don't have a lot of convicted felons in my contact database. In fact, I have one. Generally speaking, former FBI agents tend not to socialize with their former subjects. For every rule, there's an exception. Richard Bistron, in my case, is that exception. Richard's career path veered wildly from being a highly successful international sales executive to when he was targeted and charged with violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in the FBI undercover operation referred to as the SHOT Show case. He then cooperated with the FBI in an undercover capacity. After his cooperation was concluded, Richard was incarcerated for 14 and a half months and was released in December 2013. What's really remarkable about Richard is what he's done since. He's a highly sought-after public speaker, author, award-winning columnist, and creator of an award-winning compliance training video series. He is among the leading thought leaders on ethics and compliance. He's also my friend, and I speak to him fairly often. I spoke to him about how the current financial crisis has provided irrefutable evidence of the criticality of compliance officers. The workforce is facing stress, uncertainty, and anxiety about what the future of business and work might be. That kind of crisis mentality can lead to three types of thinking, as as Richard termed it, me, me, and me, which can lead to an increase in workforce misconduct where people primarily focus on meeting their own needs. But this doesn't have to be the perfect storm. This is also an opportunity for compliance officers to engage with everyone acknowledge what they're going through, and it's an opportunity to encourage people to slow things down and consider the long-term implications of decisions or actions in the near term. Richard's a very scholarly guy, and he invoked the writings of Harvard Business School professor Max Bazerman, who speaks about the importance of deliberative thinking. 
Deliberative thinking is slower, more methodical, and logical, and it leads to more ethical behaviors. Compliance leaders should be encouraging the workforce to slow things down and practice deliberative thinking despite the stress that may be compelling them to act as quickly as possible. If compliance officers are successful in getting their colleagues to slow things down and consider potential negative implications of their various actions beforehand, they could be laying the foundation for a more ethical and compliance-centric workforce once the crisis has passed. Pump and dump schemes involve thinly traded penny stocks that are held by unscrupulous broker-dealers through nominees who push stocks on unsophisticated investors, drive up the share prices, and then sell at inflated prices that cause the stock to drop in value significantly. I discussed pump and dump schemes with former Wolf of Wall Street prosecutor and current Gibson Dunn litigation partner Joel Cohen. Joel was nicknamed by Forbes magazine as the Wall Street Wolfhound after his successful prosecution of Jordan Belfort and other members of the Stratton Oakmont Boiler Room. Pump and dump schemes entail insiders from the stock boiler room getting people to act as nominees to acquire large amounts of thinly traded stock on their behalf. Unscrupulous broker-dealers, such as Stratton Oakmont did in the day, will appoint nominees, typically people they're close to, and ask them to control shares of the company. Manipulators prey on microcap exchanges because those flashy idea single product companies can be a real enticement for unsophisticated investors who think they can make a quick buck. A manipulator must make as many sales as possible in a short period of time. This then causes the stock price to go up rapidly. Many microcap stocks are valued at pennies a share. A surge in demand enables unscrupulous broker-dealers to manipulate the stock prices very easily, and a movement of just a few pennies can make a huge difference in the trading price of the stock. These broker-dealers then can take advantage of the marketplace by selling their shares over which they exercise control through nominees when the stock price reaches its falsely inflated peak, which inevitably causes the share value to plummet and innocent investors left with stock that has little to no value. That being said, there are ways to sniff out a boiler room operation. Individual investors have access to public resources and can check the reputation of an individual registered rep and the broker-dealer promoting the stock. More information is available to investors now than there ever has been. Fraudsters pushing valueless stocks on unsuspecting investors, they try to create a sense of urgency in their victims. They make them think that they must act quickly or they're going to miss out on the opportunity of a lifetime. This is a proven technique that all fraud schemes rely on. Deciding under time pressure often means suspending good judgment and acting on impulse. If you slow down, do your research, and look online, you'll find indications of prior disciplinary actions, previous pump and dump schemes, or other stock manipulations and current victims readily discoverable with just a little bit of work. So the use of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and deep learning and fraud risk management, anti-money laundering, and market surveillance is growing pretty rapidly. And it's incumbent on business persons, board members, compliance officers, and internal auditors to understand what it is, how it's being used, the benefits, and the pitfalls. So I spoke with FTI's Oscar Viral, the great and powerful Oz, and Murphy and McGonigal's Howard Kramer, who is himself a former SEC enforcement attorney to explain what artificial intelligence is, its importance, and what the future has in store for us when it comes to AI. So AI, machine learning, and deep learning are all kind of subsets of one another. AI is the development of intelligent systems not produced by nature. An algorithm is the simplest form of AI. 
Machine learning is when algorithms have learned from data and patterns and produce outcomes without the need to reprogram. Machine learning is when algorithms teach themselves without human intervention. A simple example of machine learning is when you type an internet search, maybe you omit a letter, and the search algorithms prompt you with the corrected spelling of your search terms. That's machine learning at its simplest. There's been widespread use of machine learning across a broad spectrum of activities in financial markets. The smallest subset of these three categories of AI is deep learning, which uses simulated neural networks. These are multiple layers of analysis in which algorithms at each level learn and adjust based on the inputs from the prior layer. The logic underlying deep learning is that the more layers you get, the more reprogramming with different algorithm takes place, the more precise an outcome you can expect. Now, the downside of deep learning is it requires enormous amounts of data and immense computing power. As a result, it's very expensive in comparison to machine learning. The use of AI and machine learning solutions and applications to monitor market abuse, perform trade surveillance, and monitoring traits have grown significantly. There's a wide recognition of the need to transition away from the more traditional rule-based systems to risk-based surveillance modeling using AI. Now, some compliance professionals have expressed frustration with what they term the black box approach surrounding AI, in which the logic underlying the algorithms in use isn't transparent to end users. Why are they making the decisions they're making? How are they making them? Because that's very important for compliance officers and legal professionals to understand. It's not enough to make use of AI and machine learning if its utilization and the logic of the algorithms can't be explained to a non-technical audience. As AI machine learning continues to gain widespread acceptance amongst financial institutions and their regulators, it needs to be explainable. It also needs to be auditable and traceable. And we're in an exciting time in compliance and fraud investigations. These advances in technology make it possible to examine not just a statistically valid sample, but every single trade and transaction. With these advances come new challenges. Compliance officers and organizational leaders, they have to be at least somewhat familiar with the institution's use of AI, machine learning, its benefits, and also its pitfalls. It may require a gradual change to the composition of compliance and leadership teams to include individuals with an advanced understanding of programming languages, data science, and high math. Although one thing is certain, AI, machine learning, and deep learning, they're ushering in a new era of trade surveillance and anti-fraud, and we're in for a wild ride. So, we also covered foreign bribery, kleptocracy, and efforts to counter it on a number of episodes. So with a $50 billion annual budget, the UN's mission is noble and critically important to the well-being of billions of people worldwide. It's also a really tempting target for dishonest business persons, corrupt politicians, and transnational criminals. The United Nations and its various agencies are much more susceptible to corruption than most organizations given the unique nature of how donor countries, beneficiary countries, and local and national government officials interact. The U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act makes it unlawful to pay or offer a bribe to a foreign official. The United Nations is probably the largest and most complex public international organization. The nature of how the U.N. is funded and disperses funds for large-scale infrastructure building, healthcare services, facilities and medication, education and peacekeeping operations in disproportionately high corruption risk countries, and the fact that its employees and officers are themselves foreign officials under the law, the UN really represents a perfect storm of corruption risk. 
Olshan Frome and Woloski partner Bob Appleton joined me for an episode to discuss UN corruption. Bob had previously been the first ever head of an anti-corruption unit known as the Procurement Fraud Task Force, which existed between 2006 and 2010. Much of what the UN does involves large amounts of money that are donated, spent, and directed toward projects intended to positively impact things like humanitarian health and development throughout the world in very high-risk environments. The projects themselves are undertaken with very little oversight, which makes them highly susceptible to fraud and corruption, and they could really undermine underlying objective of the projects, which is to achieve these very important goals of alleviating human suffering and improving their quality of life. Within the UN ecosystem, donor countries are known to wield a certain amount of influence as to which projects receive funding and what local contractors may be eligible to bid on a project. These donors sometimes play a role in defending companies from their countries and from corruption investigations, which undermines the integrity of the competitive bidding process that are in place and creates a clear conflict of interest. Bob shared his views on how to mitigate the risk of donor countries wielding undue influence over contract awards and thwarting investigations. He just put it really simply, take the politics out of oversight and accountability. There has to be protection built into the system to weed out the bias and protect investigators from the framework of overall contract award and investigative systems. The organization and everyone involved, including all the member countries, have to get behind this overlay of transparency and accountability and have really a uniform and universal plan and ban on this kind of behavior that allows fraud, corruption, and other forms of coercion and illegality from being permissible. The terrible irony is that the primary public international organization dedicated to the deterrence of corruption and the human suffering that it caused has itself been significantly undermined by that same corruption. Donor countries need to take the lead and redouble efforts to mitigate corruption and the undue influence that it wields over project funding and the award of contracts so that more of the badly needed support that the UN provides to alleviate suffering isn't diverted by the poison that is greed and corruption. So we spoke with Foley and Lardner partner David Simon on an episode we called the Achilles heel of FCPA compliance, which is bribe paying intermediaries. So according to Stanford University Law School's Foreign Corrupt Practices Act Clearinghouse, between 2001 and 2019, there were 268 FCPA enforcement actions, of which 246, or 91.7%, of bribes were paid by third parties as opposed to officers or employees of the defendant company. Sales agents, distributors, JV partners, resellers, freight forwarders, customs brokers, lawyers, and accountants are all categories of third-party intermediary that have been implicated in bribery prosecutions. Rarely, though, do we hear or read about the names of third-party bribe payers or the names of their companies. Global companies, particularly those who ship products internationally or rely on third parties in other ways to bring their products and services to market, are heavily reliant on virtual armies of third-party intermediaries to operate internationally. They're really a necessary evil who can act on an organization's behalf, represent them in the marketplace, and potentially trigger significant liability under the FCPA, sanctions, or anti-money laundering laws. The FCPA itself is an idiosyncratic law. It's slanted heavily toward punishing bribe-paying companies, not bribe recipients, which seems inherently unfair. In addition, although the overwhelming majority of bribes are paid by intermediaries, 
often their identities are not disclosed and they frequently are not charged in the prosecution of the company on whose behalf the bribes were paid. Now, not naming bribe payers is founded in sound public policy. The DOJ, in fact, has always avoided naming persons that aren't charged in crimes. They often are referred to as unindicted co-conspirators. That way we can talk about the conduct without naming them publicly. You know, and, and this policy is rooted in due process. Implicating people in criminal misconduct causes them harm. It's potentially defamatory, and the DOJ and also the SEC have a policy that explicitly prohibits naming uncharged individuals or persons without a significant justification. Important caveat there, significant justification. So David and his holy colleagues believe there's room for an exception here. Transparency is becoming much more important in a lot of areas of compliance, and David has recently advocated the position that the naming of these bribe-paying intermediaries who haven't been charged could potentially improve FCPA compliance. He explained that this could be a positive way to promote the goals of the whole FCPA enforcement program and it fits neatly into the DOJ's own wording of significant justification. Third-party intermediaries are by far the highest risk within the FCPA compliance world. This is where companies go wrong. This is where problems arise. The second point is the fact that both the SEC and DOJ expect companies to know if they're hiring intermediaries with the propensity to bribe and will charge companies, individuals, criminally for being willfully blind to such propensity. So in November 2012, the DOJ Fraud Section and the SEC published what would turn out to be a groundbreaking document, a resource guide to the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Detailed and yet very approachable and written in plain English, the guide, or sometimes the FCPA resource guide as it is commonly referred to, it's the primary desk reference for every compliance officer whose responsibilities include anti-bribery and corruption. Its release ushered in a new era of compliance guidance coming out of the Department of Justice, during which it has also published authoritative guidance on the evaluation of corporate compliance programs and formalized the FCPA pilot program into the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Such guidance cuts two ways. It provides clear, easy to understand rules on what the government's expectations are when it comes to ethics and compliance programs and limits an organization or individual's ability to argue that the government's expectations were unclear. And who better to discuss this guidance than one of the main authors of the FCPA Resource Guide, former DOJ FCPA chief and current Morrison and Foster partner, Chuck DeRoss. So Chuck and I talked about how important it is for companies to demonstrate that they factored the FCPA Resource Guide and other authoritative guidance into the design and implementation of their compliance program. It's critical. Once any government publishes what they consider to be authoritative compliance guidance, they have expectations that businesses will model their compliance programs accordingly. Chuck stated, you absolutely positively must review these documents. These are source materials used by the SEC. He elaborated, I've been in meetings, compliance presentations with government the past six months, and the government will pull out their copies of the evaluation of corporate compliance guidelines document which they're using as a desk reference to use in the course of the discussion. If they're using it, companies should make sure that they're not just familiar with it, but they've done an analysis of how they would answer the questions that are contained in them. Chuck said this, I would recommend doing it that now on a sunny day. And if you do it today, you'll certainly thank yourself for having done it tomorrow. 
We also talked about mergers and acquisitions and their implications for FCPA compliance. So gone are the days when the potential bribery and corruption risk of an acquisition can afford to be something assessed at the 11th hour or not at all. Success or liability stemming from undiscovered bribery activity can give rise to devastating financial consequences. Skadden ARP's partner and FCPA luminary Gary DiBianco and I discussed the importance of MA due diligence to avoid success or liability. As we said a moment ago, the FCPA resource guide and the evaluation of corporate compliance programs provide ample guidance on mergers and acquisitions. Gary explains some of the key takeaways from his two documents as they relate to FCPA acquisition due diligence. The guidance says that the DOJ will only impose successor liability where it's legally appropriate to do so, where there was liability for the predecessor business acquisition of a non-U.S. company where there was no jurisdiction previously. This does not create jurisdiction. If you have a non-U.S. entity that was not subject to DOJ jurisdiction, conduct that may have occurred before the acquisition is not going to be brought into the remit of the Justice Department solely because that company was now acquired by a company over which the DOJ does have jurisdiction. The guidance also acknowledges that when the acquirer takes careful steps to perform due diligence, examines FCPA risks, and remediates anything necessary upon acquisition and integrates the two compliance programs, in most instances, they will not take enforcement action against the acquiring entity. Now, many non-U.S. companies, particularly those that fall below a certain revenue size, they don't really have much in the way of an anti-corruption compliance program, unfortunately. And under that scenario, anti-corruption due diligence starts to look a lot more like an anti-corruption risk assessment. So examining historical entertainment, marketing or sales expenses, fees associated with permitting or licensing practices, and disbursements to sales agents and consultants can potentially open a window into any corrupt activity involving the acquisition target and provide some degree of negative assurance if no problematic transactions are noted. It's equally important to identify the universe of government touch points, which the target has across its customer base. It's equally important to identify the universe of government touch points, which the target has across its customer base, intermediaries empowered to act on their behalf, employees, permitting, licensing, and regulatory agency. By delving deeply into these relationships, particularly those that are frequent or of high value, can really provide an in-depth picture of the potential corruption risk of an acquisition target. So in in retrospect, uh, it might have been overly ambitious to recap all 30 episodes on a single episode of the podcast. We're trying to keep the episodes below a certain length. We're not always successful, but I think in this instance, this recap episode really lends itself to two. Please tune in for the second half of this episode in which we recap the 30 first episodes of Fraudy Strategy. Thank you for listening. And if you have an idea for a topic or guest for an upcoming episode of Fraud Eat Strategy, please feel free to email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening. 